Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. This is the 76th episode of the podcast. I'm enjoying it. I hope you are too. It's a lot of fun to be able to share a couple of thoughts about fly fishing, maybe some helpful things in this medium, along with the posts that appear every Monday and Wednesday on castingacross.com. Talk more about that at the end of the podcast. But today, I want to talk about a destination for you, someplace that you should go fishing. I would actually say that you need to go fishing. You would be foolish to not go fishing here. And that is your neighborhood pond. Your neighborhood pond. My middle and high school years were spent in Northern Virginia. Northern Virginia, if you are not aware, is not really Virginia. I mean, for all legal purposes, it's Virginia, but it's just very different than the rest of the state. And when I moved there in the early 90s, it was just exploding from a growth standpoint. The county I lived in was the fastest growing county in the nation for a number of years. And it had to do with uh, the proximity to Washington, D.C. and the infrastructure for technology that was being laid down. So everyone's parents were either in the government or in defense or in uh, technology and then all of the support systems that surrounded them. So this area was just blowing up. And so the few homes that we lived in in that area were all very new construction in very new neighborhoods. Uh, there was huge condo developments, there were a large townhouse expanses, and there were big single-family homes. And, of course, in this rolling topography with a lot of natural water features that were already there before people came and started adding roads and towns and strip malls and things like that, they had to find ways to accommodate not just the natural drainage and the natural wetlands that were there, but then also the increased runoff from all these impervious surfaces that they were putting in. So this isn't necessarily a treatise on the environmental impact, but the result of all of that tinkering and all 
of those new homes and all that new construction was a series of ponds, retention ponds. And this is the case for any sort of subdivision kind of development design style because it's a great way to move water into one place to keep it off of the roadways, to keep it out of people's basements. But if this isn't your living situation, if this is not the kind of environment that you are presently in, there's a good chance that there's a park nearby with a pond. There may very well be an office park that has a retention pond, and based on the legality of accessing that, it, that could be an option as well. But these ponds more often than not hold fish. And I would say that they create an opportunity for getting into big fish and some really exciting fish in an unexpected fashion that really isn't paralleled in trout fishing, really isn't paralleled even in fishing larger water systems, because the nature of these fisheries, predominantly warm water, so we're talking sunfish and bass and catfish and maybe carp and some other species mixed in. Certainly you could have trout in ponds like this depending on where you live. You could have other species like gar or snakehead or things like that. But you can very easily get into very big fish based upon those ponds, food sources, and maybe even their interconnectivity to other water bodies. Some of these ponds that I would fish would have little creeks that allowed fish to move in higher water seasons between one pond and another. Of course, there's a, an infinite number of variables that go into what makes your pond what it is. But the carrying capacity, how much biomass some of these ponds can actually contain is pretty high. And if you have species like largemouth bass, you can really get into some big fish. So why is this something that I'm talking about? Why am I talking about you fishing in the pond that's along the jogging trail in your neighborhood? This was an instrumental part of me developing as an angler, not just as a fly fisher, but as an angler in general. Saturday mornings throughout the year found me walking down to the neighborhood pond. Throughout the summertime after breakfast, I found my way to one of the local ponds and I would spend time walking the banks and watching for fish and figuring out how fishing worked. I would watch fish and there is absolutely a one-to-one -one correlation in so many ways between the way that a bluegill chases a small MEPS spinner and the way that a trout chases a articulated streamer. There, there, there are so many differences in watching fish body movement and seeing what kind of things elicit reactions, what turns fish off, what makes them strike unexpectedly. And it's not a perfect comparison, but there are a lot of points of continuity in just observing fish behavior. Fish are fish. I know that there are so many differences even between like a brown trout and a brook trout, but there are so many similarities and understanding those similarities is a lot more important than really having those differences dialed in. So getting onto these ponds is a wealth of education, but it's also a great way to get a fishing fix. This is being recorded in the midst of the whole coronavirus situation. Hopefully in a matter of weeks, things will start to return to normal. But if you're not going to be flying to Montana, if you're not going to be heading to Belize or Alaska or to Mongolia or something like that, if maybe you're even unable to get to that trout river that you love to be on that's a couple hours away, then head to your local pond. And this is true all the time, regardless of the circumstances at a global level. 
You can always go to your local pond and spend some time walking the bank. Spend some time playing with that new rod, playing with that new reel. Maybe seeing on those streamers that you've tied, are they spinning around? Are they twisting your leader because you put too much material on one side or the other? Is this a line weight that you like casting with this rod? You can get those things dialed in while actually pursuing some potentially legitimate fish. And uh, at the bare minimum, catching some great sunfish, which there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. We've already talked for about five or six minutes, but I did want to bring up a few things that I think are important for fishing in these situations, especially if you haven't done it before. I know that a lot of people have started their fishing career and potentially their fly fishing life by fishing in ponds like this, by spending time walking the banks of their local farm ponds or park ponds or neighborhood ponds. But there are just as many people who walked into a fly shop one day and said, hey, I want to give this a shot. And they immediately got a couple thousand dollars worth of gear and headed out to local trout river. And the first fish they caught was a hard sought after trout in some wild situation. And they've never even looked towards fishing for bluegill in the local pond. Maybe out of ignorance, not any sort of bad ignorance, but just not realizing that that's a viable option for casting your five weight to. Or maybe out of that negative false stigma that that's not real fly fishing. That's just as real fly fishing as any other kind of fishing. Um, that is just as real fly fishing, just as legitimate, just as fun, just as challenging, just as rewarding as pursuing Spring Creek trout with a dry fly on 7x tippet. I mean, they're obviously they're different, but from a pursuit standpoint, they're the same. And you might find there's lots of days where you would much rather throw a little foam ant and catch big, fat, feisty bluegill than be crawling on your hands and knees on a hot, damp Spring Creek's bank stalking fish that are probably just going to say no. They both have their charm. They both have their allure. But there's nothing wrong with tossing a weedless frog over some lily pads and getting a big, and a big may only be 12 or 14 inches, or it may be significantly larger than that, largemouth bass crashing and getting your heart racing. It's all fun. It's all good. So a couple of quick things. I would say that your trout gear is going to work more often than not. If this is not something that you do often, or if this is something that you do have that preconceived notion that you really have to start from scratch if you want to fish in this manner, I would say it's not necessarily the case. Your trout gear is going to work fine. I did a podcast a while ago, maybe even a year ago, called From uh, Trout to Panfish and Back Again, I think, or something like that. And just talking about how fishing warm water species is a great way to improve your trout fishing skills. And I think that certainly holds true. And I talked a little bit about gear selection. I think there's also a podcast selecting a light warm water fly rod. I know there's definitely an article about that. So you can go to castingcross.com and check that out. Some of my suggestions for rods. But I think your trout gear will work great, especially for dry flies, which dry flies are absolutely killer for warm water species. Some of the best bass fishing you can have is with dragonflies. Now, dragonflies, especially if they're foam or if they've got a woven body and they're bigger, you know, they, they might only be tied on like a size 8 or 10 hook, but if they have a bigger body on them that extends beyond the bend of the hook, 
that is going to have a lot of wind resistance. It's light, doesn't weigh anything, but the thing has a lot of wind resistance because it's meant to imitate that big profile of a dragonfly or a damselfly or something like that. But you'll be able to get it out there with a five weight. You're just going to have to alter your casting stroke a little bit. And use your normal reel. I mean, if you get into a carp, then your reel, if it's a click pawl reel, it's going to really make you work, but it's going to be fine. You're going to use that normal reel, use your normal rod, use your normal line. You don't have to get any fancy line. A trout line works in most situations. A trout line, a, a traditional trout line, is the most basic casting taper out there. If you're throwing a lot of poppers, if you are trying to make really, really delicate presentations to any fish, carp or bass or trout, whatever, there's certainly tapers that uh, fit those casting styles more appropriately. But for most warm water fishing, a normal trout line is going to work great. It's going to stand up to the warmer conditions. It's going to handle even larger streamers without it, without a problem. And then your leader and tippet, just use your normal stuff. Snip it back to it's like 2x, uh, 3x if you're having to use smaller flies, and then just run another three or four feet of 3x tippet or 2x tippet off the end of it, making that taper really flat. Now, if you are fishing smaller dry flies for panfish, you're going to want to taper it down a little bit more, but not a whole lot more. And at this point, it's more about getting that fly to cast well than it is about being sneaky and trying to conceal the fact that your fly is tied to something for the fish. But you can use, you know, six or seven feet for streamers and then seven to nine feet for dry flies. And you'll do just fine. And of course, you can nymph for fish. If the water has any sort of movement on it, or you can even suspend a nymph under a strike indicator, and it is just truly a bobber. I mean, there's no way around it in this instance. But I think that's great to do a wire-ribbed nymph uh, under a strike indicator and just float that through where a bunch of bluegill are. If there's a little bit of movement on the, the surface of the, the water from wind, it is a really great way to get into some some bluegill and you can run two or three nymphs underneath a strike indicator and just have a lot of fun fighting two or three bluegill at once in that situation i would say continue to use that seven to nine foot leader now the only difference is that with a popper going back up top then i would use that six or seven foot leader and keep it a bit thicker only because those traditional high percentage points where you're going to be casting those poppers are going to be around weeds, potentially around wood, rocks, other structure like that. And so having that 0x, 1x, 2x is going to be a way to protect your leader and protect your fly and make sure that fish gets to you. But that's all stuff that you have already. What a great way to have to make an investment by buying a couple of spools of 0 and 1x tippet if you don't have that already. And those are great things to have on hand anyway, because then you can build up your leaders. You just hang on to those butt sections, which are virtually bulletproof. They'll last you a year as long as you're not doing anything crazy with them. And you can take those butt sections of your used trout leaders, the tapered leaders that you might be using, and once they get down to two or three feet, then those can become your warm water leaders. You know, take your spools of thick tippet and just do a couple of feet with great blood knots on in between the sections and you're going to have a leader that's going to just do great for you when you are fishing with poppers or streamers or even tapering it down even further to some smaller flies for panfish. And I think you'll be surprised with how successful you'll be with trout flies 
in warm water situations. Now there's probably some things that you're not going to necessarily have in your trout box that are going to excel in a warm water pond situation. Your crayfish imitations, your dragonfly imitations, and then again your poppers, things that look like little frogs or something like that. But you'll do just fine with your trout gear. Now, if you are a saltwater angler, then I think you're probably even in better shape. And here's the reason why. Your poppers that you use in the surf and your streamers that you use for stripers or bluefish or redfish or sea trout or whatever it is, they're going to do just fine for those larger warm water fish. You will have to dial down the size if you do want to get into panfish, but your eight weight there's absolutely nothing wrong with throwing that rod. It's not going to overpower fish, especially bigger panfish. An eight weight is not going to feel like you are setting the hook on nothing and fighting nothing. I mean, you're still going to have a fight with that fish. And you're going to be able to do a lot of fun things with some really cool flies. Now, they're as expensive, if sometimes even more expensive than saltwater flies, but some of those deer hair poppers and deer hair divers and some of those other really cool flies that are really designed just to imitate conventional lures. Let's not convince ourselves that we're not fishing our best attempts to replicate Rapala's using deer hair and feathers because those are what catch fish and those are really hard to throw with a five weight, a six weight, and an eight weight, and even heavier is necessary to throw bigger flies like that. But there are going to be bass in virtually every pond. Once they get to like 14 inches, 16 inches, they're going to go crazy for a fly that's four inches long. They're going to attempt to eat a wounded bait fish or a fleeing bait fish imitation that's that size. And if there's a 14-inch fish, a 16-inch fish, there's a good chance there's a bigger fish in there too. And so fishing with an 8 weight's not a bad idea. I would actually turn to fishing warm water as much as I can with an 8 weight just because it gives me more flexibility to throw bigger flies when I have opportunities. And if I'm fishing for carp, then I have a lot more confidence when I'm making those casts to those fish that I'm not going to uh, be in trouble once I finally hook up. So that's a couple of words on gear and it's not rocket science it's pretty easy use what you have make a few modifications buy a handful of flies from the local shop that will meet your particular needs of the kind of pond that you're fishing just walk the bank see what's flying around the lily pad see what's sitting on the rocks right on the edge of the water and find flies that imitate that stuff because that is exactly what those fish are going to be eating and when you get into the water, when you start casting, when you start fishing, have fun, first and foremost. Just enjoy yourself. Don't think of this as second-rate fly fishing. There's so many days, like I was saying earlier, where simply casting small poppers to bluegills is an ideal and just a wonderful way to spend your day. It is carefree, but at the same time, there is challenge. I mean, catching a palm-sized panfish is good. Catching one that goes from your fingertips down to your forearm is even better. And those fish aren't just randomly generated. After four small ones, you get a big one. There is trial and error and tactics and techniques and locations and approaches that you have to make. They didn't get to be a year class bigger and older and smarter than those fish just by chance. So 
there's a lot more than just going out and casting. And the same thing is true for the bass and for other fish that you might be pursuing. There's a very good chance that you're not the only person fishing in this water. So it's not going to be simple. You can't think, okay, I catch big, strong trout on big, wild trout rivers, so I'm going to go into this little neighborhood pond and clean up. The kids that are throwing worms and the kids that are throwing these expensive, fancy jerk baits, they're going to be doing better than you, and they have a lot more time on their hands than you do. And so to be able to put in the time and say, okay, this is a pressured fishery, there's a very good chance it is. I mean, if you're, again, sneaking into that office park in the pond they have, then you, you might have a, a little bit more of an unmolested situation. But there's a lot of fisheries, a lot of ponds that have a lot of pressure, and so it is going to be a bit of a challenge. But what this allows you to do, again, is a few things. You can work out the kinks of your cast. So if this is the situation, if you want to work on your cast, don't put a big foam popper on the end of your five weight and say, I really want to work on my cast, but I really want to catch a big bass. Okay, it's one or the other in that situation. But you can also, like I was talking about earlier, work on your observational skills. When you hear a fish break the surface of the water, that distinctive crack of a little panfish uh, breaking the surface to eat something, then try to work on locating that. It's not the same as a rising trout, but at the same time, you can figure out how good am I at looking where I should be looking when I hear a fish breaking the surface. Or if there's a little bit of wind, you can work on the placement of your cast. These are small things where you can you can fish 100% and you can work 100%. You can figure out what you need to do to improve your casting or your presentation or your retrieve, and you're going to be rewarded by fish. And it's always surprising, as I was saying earlier, you never know what you're going to get into. The amount of catfish and carp and weird quote-unquote trash fish. I like rough fish a lot better than trash fish rough fish that you get into in these situations, it keeps you guessing. And it's a lot of fun that one minute you're working on trying to get your cast to do something at 50 feet, you know, trying to get it to, to lay down nice and straight. And the next thing you're reeling in some bizarre aquarium fish that somebody threw in there. It's a lot of fun. And then of course, fun, I would say is the, is the most important thing. Just enjoy it. Get out. If you can't get out somewhere else, then get out where you can. You know, um, if you can't fish with the one you love, fish with one the one you're with i think there's a song about that or something so have fun catch some fish bass bluegill gar crappie you name it it's all in there it's all good this week on castingacross.com first article was a lot of fun because it was a mentor interview from the mayfly project and so i interviewed a gentleman named greg lunsford and he is part of the arkansas project of the mayfly project and if you are unaware the mayfly project works with kids in foster care and it takes them on fly fishing activities and there is enrichment involved and mentorship involved it's a wonderful program there's going to be more content from me dealing with them in the very near future, but check out this article. And then on Wednesday, I wrote, Fast Flies, Three Uses for Colored UV Resin. As I've said numerous times before, I am not a proficient fly tire, but I am a sufficient fly tire. I tie what I need, I tie what I use, and as I'm working on becoming a better and more skilled fly tire, I love little ways to kind of cut corners and to cheat. And so one of those things that I do because of my time and because of my limited equipment, when I am tying weighted nymphs, 
instead of using different thread wraps for determining this one has a little bit of uh, wrapped weight, this one has a lot of wrapped weight, just a simple thing like that. It's just fast, it's quick, I have two or three little bottles of colors on right in front of me and I can say, okay, heaviest is blue, medium is yellow, lightest is red. And it creates a hot spot and a place for the fish to kind of focus on also. That's one example. I put two or three other examples in that article as well. This week's recommendation on the podcast is Loon's Hackle Pliers. These hackle pliers are part of their Ergo line, and they are much wider where your fingers go. And what this does is it really reduces you slipping as you are winding hackle. And I find that this leads to less hackles being broken, especially in the smaller patterns. One of the things that, for whatever reason, I've decided to do is I like to tie my tiny flies, so 18s, 20s, 22s, because I use those and I lose those. And so that's something I feel like I need to tie well. So if I'm using these tiny little hackles, and I don't like having my fingers right up on the fly, so I like to use hackle pliers. But the hackle pliers that are really, really narrow, where your thumb and your, your forefinger go, I find them twisting, I find them slipping, and I find myself breaking those smaller hackles. And of course, this happens with larger hackles too when I'm tying streamers or when I'm tying bigger dry flies. But these Loon Ergo hackle pliers, they are not expensive and they are extremely well-made and they aren't gonna move around in your hand and they're bright yellow, so you're not gonna lose them. And I've lost more hackle pliers just because they're small and they're flat. And uh, I don't think I'll be losing these anytime soon. So definitely check them out. I will put a link to Loon's website at the bottom of the show notes of this page. And that's actually also where I get my UV colored resins that I mentioned in the article on Wednesday. And read about that. There's a link to those UV colored resins on that post. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe in your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast in iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com where you'll find more info on this podcast and three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. Mm-hmm.